0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Welcome to the premiere episode of Pioneers and Pathfinders. Our premier guest couldn't be more exemplary of the guests we'll meet in this podcast. I first met Dr. Heidi Gardner more years ago than I care to remember when I was invited to join her Harvard Law School class for the presentation of a business case study on Seifert's use of Lean Six Sigma. I've been an avid follower of her work in smart collaboration ever since. In this conversation, we discussed the genesis of her scholarship, why she chose to devote her career to the study of professional services, and specific barriers to collaboration in legal and during the pandemic. A particular interest is our discussion on the erosion of trust during remote work and the two types of trust you must have for effective collaboration. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Given everything you've got on your plate, I can imagine things being all around the clock on your devices.
1: Yeah, it's true, actually. I had one of those days where I'm sort of uh, following the sun. It started in Australia and then Singapore and then France and the UK, then the East Coast, and then I'll go on to Chicago and finish up in San Francisco today.
0: Life in a virtual world. How do you, how do you manage those uh, time zone challenges? Do you, do you, uh, you do get some sleep, I presume.
1: Yeah, actually I do, I do. Um, and looking forward to the weekend, I'll promise you that.
0: <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could imagine. What's life been like in a virtual world?
1: I miss the human contact without a doubt but I've been very impressed with how resilient a lot of my clients have been. Initially, there was huge hesitation to hold events virtually. And I think what we've shown is that we can actually create hugely interactive, very lively, engaging sessions. And that if we are clever about the technology, it gives us an opportunity to do things that maybe we wouldn't have done in person. And so, as much as I miss the buzz of being able to interact with people, and um, I think what I miss most is the kind of serendipitous encounters, you know, the people who drop by the front of the classroom or the stage or whatever afterward and have those kinds of casual conversations and, you know, hey, have you thought of, or, you know, the kinds of things that people don't do when it's a Zoom screen and everyone is listening to them have that conversation. You know, so I, I miss that. But all in all, I think we've, you know, found our groove, at least for the time being. And I'll be very curious to see what decisions organizations make going forward about the balance between live and virtual and some kind of a mix.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I think about that in the law firm context, because the economics of the business would tell you to stay virtual as much as you can. But the the Cultural imperatives, the um, resistance to change—I think will bring that pendulum back to the so where it stops is going to be an interesting piece.
1: Absolutely, I hope that people are open to experimentation. Now, for example, I'm, I'm working with a law firm um, soon who is for the first time including associates in their sector retreat. You know, it used to be in person and so it was a fairly exclusive for, you know, certain level of partner, et cetera. And now they can open it up. It's an all-firm, all attorney event. And, you know, the opportunity to be more inclusive, I think, is a huge advantage of the virtual environment. And I hope that organizations really do continue to leverage that. And that in the future we're going to have the best of all worlds when it's right for the occasion.
0: I've been doing a number of Zoom calls, and it's, is to your point, it's involved people that otherwise, in, in an in-person meeting, either would have had to have gotten on a plane with the time and the expense, or otherwise wouldn't have been involved. And it adds to the richness Absolutely. of the conversation.
1: Absolutely. So, Absolutely. It's an interesting compliment. I think it's not a substitute for in-person.
0: Yeah. I agree with that. So hopefully the balance strikes somewhere in the middle.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, well, I'm here today talking with Dr. Heidi Gardner. We sort of jumped into the conversation. Uh, Heidi, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, for those of you that may not be familiar with her work, I encourage you to go to gardnerandco.co, her website for her consulting and research company that lists most of her, you've written over seventy books, articles, chapters. I st- I lost count as to what you have on the uh, on the website. I think it's not all seventy, but you've got all the highlight. You've got the biggest hits on there.
1: Absolutely. If we don't have the if we don't have the actual work up there, we've got links to it and so forth. So we've tried to be as inclusive as we can and make things available to people.
0: So, I do. You have an incredibly impressive background. In addition to your BA, you've got two masters, a doctorate from the London School of Business. You've worked for McKinsey. You've worked for Procter & Gamble. You started at the Harvard Business School. And now you're a lecturer at the Harvard Law School. The one, the JDs are missing from your many uh, acronyms after your name. What is it that led you to include the law as one of your focuses in terms of research and application and advice? What, how did you make that jump?
1: Well, I've been studying law firms since literally my second day in my PhD program back in 2002. And so having come from McKinsey and started a PhD, I knew the general topic I wanted to study, which was a question that was burning in my brain the whole time I was at McKinsey, you know, which essentially is how do teams make the most, the absolute most of the expertise and the different perspectives that people bring to a team? So I can tell you more about where that burning question came from. But when I began at London Business School, my PhD, I had the opportunity, literally second day uh, on campus, to join a research project. And I helped to reorient it to professional service firms, obviously a setting I knew well from the inside. And we wanted a variety of professional firms in that first research study. So we had accounting firms, law firms executive search firms, and a couple other kinds of organizations, professional service organizations, and it allowed us to do a comparative study there. So I became a little bit familiar with law firms from that point on, and it just went deeper and deeper until the point where after six years at Harvard Business School, I had a lot of data from all kinds of other professional organizations, but not very much from law firms. And I realized that I would have a lot more credibility working on the law school faculty. And that and a variety of other factors encouraged me to make the move to Harvard Law School.
0: So how's it been teaching lawyers as opposed to teaching business students? Is there a difference between them? Is is the style of teaching different? Is the level of inquisition different?
1: Well, I can compare teaching the JDs and the LLMs to teaching the MBAs but I'm not doing any of that graduate level teaching any longer. Now, my experience is teaching executives at the law school versus the business school. And so, so first, you know, when you think about the students, they're both incredibly bright populations. Obviously, they're at Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School. What struck me as being very different from one school to the other with the graduate students is that the business students all had some real life experience. And so they knew how hard it is to run a business. They most hadn't done it themselves, some had, but they understood that leading and managing people is a skill in and of itself. Where the law students that I've gotten, aside from the LLMs who also had work experience, they didn't appreciate that there's really much to practicing law except for knowing black letter law. Um, Mm -hmm. Even those who had had, summer internships and, you know, fairly extensive experience, they had never seen a real life client before. And so, you know, sometimes I would invite chairs of law firms or, you know, prominent um, professional, you know, business professionals from, from firms or so forth to come speak to my students. And a number of times I invited general counsel to come. And that was, even though some people had worked for months inside a law firm as a, a summer intern, they'd never seen a real life client before. And, um, and so that was really eye-opening for them and for me to experience, frankly, how naive they were. I don't mean that in a condescending way, but just they hadn't had the exposure. And for the subjects that I teach around leadership and teamwork and collaboration, I think that um, the law students hadn't yet experienced how important that is in developing the practice of law, the relationships with clients and, and with colleagues. And, um, and that was a clear difference to me when I was teaching now that I'm teaching strictly executives. So I teach, I'm the faculty chair of a number of programs at Harvard Law School. I teach executives at Harvard Business School. And I think one of the biggest differences is that the lawyers tend to be quite literal. It's interesting when I'm using the case study method, for example, and there is a case that's set outside of a law firm. Maybe it's a consulting firm or an accounting firm. I have to be really clear about what those parallels are. I find um, that uh, that the lawyers want to dig in and think about. Hang on, that's not how it works in you know, IP litigation. It's like no, no, no. Let's you know abstract. Let's pull away from that and think about the leadership lessons here. That said, teaching at the law school is fabulous because people there are very hungry for this. They haven't been inculcated in leadership lessons, um, you know, managing partners, and You know, lawyers of all levels who come for executive education, they understand that this was a missing component in their legal education and they're ready to learn. They're ready to put it into action. They're highly inquisitive and very challenging, which I love. And they appreciate the evidence. You know, my work is all empirically based. And so when I can present that data to lawyers and give them the evidence for why what we're talking about really matters, they just soak it up. And I love that kind of interaction.
0: When you uh, that sounds fascinating because the uh, you know one of the challenge of working with lawyers is their literal nature and the fact that as lawyers were trained to look for the distinctions were trained to look for why this doesn't work and so that must be a really interesting teaching challenge as you describe it to, to sort of overcome that what sort of tricks have you learned to sort of deal with it? because that has to be a consistent component of the people, the executives that are coming in. How do you you deal with that?
1: I don't take anything for granted. So teaching at the business school, even with my MBAs, I would have gotten pounded if I had been so explicit about what the lessons were. They would have told me I was condescending, that I was doing their work for them, that I was spoon feeding. You know, that would have been completely out of bounds. At the law school, it's really important to be explicit about what we've covered, why we've covered it in that way, and what the key takeaways are. At the same time, I know how important it is for adult learning, and I would argue for anyone's learning, to help people arrive at those conclusions themselves. And so what I've learned to do is structure conversations in ways that It helps people process information in a logical sequence. It allows people to use frameworks they're familiar with or experiences that they've had to digest this new information that's coming in and sort it and filter it and make sense of it and then arrive at their conclusions. And then collectively, we'll talk about what we learned from it. And I can help them to to shape that into what some of the the ahas are. And. It's been, a, it's been a tremendous growth experience for me learning how to do that. And now we have all the challenges of online learning. And so we're doing that as well. And there is a real art to shaping a conversation, but not dictating it. And that's where I think a lot of the art of both online and in-person teaching comes. And, and, and I've been really fortunate to work with an incredible group of people over the years who have helped me understand where that line is. And I'm talking about my executive participants. And they've, they've really uh, worked with me. And I think we've co-created something that's quite special.
0: So you, you've been teaching the executives now for a number of years. Uh, and so you've, you've processed a number of people. You They come through your, your classes and then you turn them loose into the wild. Any sort of feedback you've gotten as to real life use of the things they've learned and success stories you'd be able to share with us?
1: Absolutely. It was um, fabulous. Just this past week, by coincidence, I got two emails out of the blue from people who were in my executive programs in 2014 and 2015. And it's such a thrill to hear from them and understand what they've taken back. And I'm very fortunate because. The work that I do at Harvard dovetails with a lot of work that I do in my private life. And so I often have interactions with people six weeks, six months, six years after they've taken the courses. And so I get this feedback often. One of the things that I hear from people that they take back to the firm is the focus on data and evidence and empirics. That it's so crucial to be able to harness the data that you have in your own firm and use it to understand patterns and really interrogate it to understand patterns that are hard for the human mind to detect. So how do you apply statistics to the data that you've already got to see these patterns? And so somebody was in a a session with me recently and has gone back to their firm and recreated some of the analyses that we talked about in the classroom to figure out the difference between Representation on a team, so how many women, how many people of color, et cetera, et cetera, and true inclusion. Because what my data showed from a, uh, an array of law firms is that you might have proportionally the right number, or even say overrepresentation of women on a deal team. But when you look at the position that they they play in that deal team, when you look at the number of hours they've contributed, when you can Dig into the data and see how much face time they had with the client, it's really small. And so, data interrogation like that helps us to see when there are lies and damn lies and statistics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. Really trying to to dig in and say, what are these patterns? What do we observe? And then, what's really happening?
0: And a lot of your work, you mentioned it earlier, your first pro, some of your first passion. Uh, has culminated in what you refer to as smart collaboration which i know when people are unfamiliar with it they may sort of think of that as teamwork but you mean something different by that by by the use of the term smart can you tell us what you mean by that
1: absolutely so i'm really careful to modify collaboration with smart because not all collaboration is smart so when we talk about smart collaboration We are talking about the integration of different bases of expertise, different insights, different life experiences into a more complete holistic solution that allows that group of people to solve more complex problems than any of them could do on their own. So for example, when we saw in early days of the COVID crisis, some automakers had to turn to making ventilators. Clearly that is a skill set and a capability that is way beyond anyone who was serving them from the automotive perspective. It goes way beyond the, the kinds of transactions that a normal lawyer would need to handle in the private market, because there was a lot of interaction with the government, for example. And so to make that work, a team would have needed to pull together their automotive experts, their life sciences experts, Their government affairs people, their regulatory lawyers, their deal lawyers, and, and, and. And that's smart collaboration because they were tackling a complex, crucial problem holistically. Because if you had only taken one lens on that problem, you would have missed both risks and opportunities. And that's what we mean by smart collaboration is really bringing people together who have complementary points of view. And allowing them collectively to do more than any of them could do on their own.
0: What started you down this path? You mentioned it. It sort of sounds like it started back when you were in your started your PhD program. But where's the genesis of this research come from?
1: Two things. One was my time at McKinsey. So I spent five years at McKinsey. A little bit of time in New York, mostly in London. A year in Johannesburg, and it gave me the opportunity to work with an. Incredible diversity of people. McKinsey at the time and still does recruit people not just out of MBA programs, but you know I was running teams that had an astrophysicist, a concert pianist, somebody who was a, a military veteran, um, as well as business people, and you know that was just one team that I can recall with incredible diversity of expertise and experiences, and some of those teams were. Unbelievable. I mean, just fired up, innovative, working in ways that we could have never ever imagined at the outset. And then some of them, you know, we produced solid, good results, but it was kind of like, ugh, afterward, you looked at the product and you think, seriously, I mean, we had geniuses on this team who came from all over the place geographically and you know, life-wise. And we came up with, you know, a two-by-two framework. Hmm. So we were so busy solving the client's problem, we didn't really have a chance to look internally, at least not at the depth I wanted to, to understand the difference. Why were some teams so much more effective than others at harnessing the full capacity of their team members? And eventually I realized that I wasn't going to be able to figure that out if I stayed at McKinsey and kept doing the work. So that's when I left for my PhD and I began studying teams like that. So that was the first set of questions I had was around the team level. The second major breakthrough came when I was teaching at Harvard Business School in one of the programs with a a whole bunch of managing partners and CEOs of professional firms. We were having lunch after class one day, and they said, you know, we really appreciate the work that you're doing in these teams, you know, the client service teams, for example. But what really keeps me awake at night is how do I get the heads of each of those client teams to work together? In other words, how do I get the partners not to work more effectively with the associates, et cetera, but how do I get that partner-to-partner teamwork happening? And it turns out the world didn't really have a great answer for that, mm-hmm. at least not in the context of professional firms where people have huge amounts of autonomy to choose how they work, whom they work with, or whether they work in a more solo capacity. And once I realized that I could take you know, all of my award-winning research on intact teams, you know, clearly defined teams and blow it up and look at these kinds of teams where they're very dynamic. There's partners kind of moving in and out of the mix. And there's different kinds of people who are needed both hierarchically and, and horizontally and across practice groups and geographies. That's when it got really exciting. And that's the research that ultimately led to my first book, Smart Collaboration. And it's the work we're still building on because we've now got a contract with Harvard Business Press to write the follow-up to that book.
0: That is clearly a challenge faced in the big law legal profession. I I know I dealt with it for many, many years. A couple of questions derived from that. One of the changes in the profession, I think, over the last few years has been the increasing use of other skilled professionals, technologists, project managers process engineers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just partner, law partner to law partner or law partner to associate. Are there additional challenges brought in the legal profession? In your research, it has it shown, that coordination or that collaboration with the allied professionals, to steal a Bill Henderson term, brings as opposed to lawyer to lawyer
1: Absolutely. So a couple of challenges spring to mind. One is that they simply speak different languages, right? Mm -hmm. They have a different vernacular, um, they use different jargons and acronyms, and, and it's hard to see past that sometimes. And so there is a learning curve there where people need to learn one another's language and ways of seeing problems. Because We know that different people, depending on their chosen occupation and the training that they've had, will see the exact same situation as a risk versus an upside, for example. And so literally taking other people's perspectives is is hugely challenging when people have such different backgrounds. I would say another problem, if I'm blunt with you, is the status Mm -hmm. problem. In law firms, it's so typical to hear people who are dismissed essentially as second-class citizens because they're non-lawyers. And so we do need words like, or phrases like allied professionals to describe people who are legitimate professionals with their own sophisticated training and basis of expertise who add significant value. It might not be legal, technical value, but it is Equally important to being able to deliver at the highest levels for clients. And I think until people get over themselves with the kind of superiority point of view, that it's going to be tough to fully make the most of everyone and what they bring to the firm. That said, I've seen a number of examples, firms around the world that are making enormous strides in this and are doing, I think, perhaps in the last year. More than ever to harness unique perspectives not only from people who are practicing professions other than law but inside law firms um, but also people who are junior, for example the you know the the, the work from home environment and a number of societal shifts, etc have really tapped into passions and experiences and perspectives where juniors are Adding significantly to client teams, for example, and I'm absolutely thrilled to see that in the legal profession. Because, as I said, coming up through McKinsey, that was something that was very powerful, very intentional at that firm, and I think it makes an enormous difference.
0: Yeah, uh, it certainly does. And in addition, the status point you make is is spot on. I mean, there there has been a history in the legal profession that how special. We are as compared to other professions. And one of the other challenges is that I think a lot of firms deal with is the building of trust between partner level people. As you think about using other professions, whether they be other partners or other juniors or other professionals on your client matters, there's an element of trust that comes in there. Are there, tricks you've seen people use to sort of overcome that trust barrier and build up build those links
1: Absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize that trust has multiple flavors. So, in our research, we had open-ended responses from several thousand partners in professional service firms, helping us understand where were the barriers to collaboration and where were the the bright spots of collaboration inside their firms. And because we collected the data in their own words, we weren't pre-labeling or pre-categorizing their answers. We were simply asking them what stands in the way. And through all of the qualitative analysis that we did that was very robust methodologies, we understood that there were two flavors of trust that were very important. One is what we labeled competence trust. So Steve, if you you and I are going to work together, you have to believe that I am going to deliver high quality on time, on budget, and that I'm going to be responsive to the client and treat them as well as you do. So that's the competence trust, but you might believe I'm the world's greatest expert in something, but if you think I'm a jerk, you're still not going to collaborate with me unless you absolutely have to. I might be you know, the, the only person who knows that and then you'll grudgingly capture my expertise, but you'll keep me in a box, right? You won't put me in front of the client, You'll. If you're suspicious of my motives or my intentions, you're worried about me taking undue credit or undermining your relationship with your client, then that is going to be a a huge barrier as well. So first step in, in figuring out how to create the right levels of trust is a diagnosis of what stands in the way. Is it competence trust? So this happens between different professions. You know, I really don't understand what project management is. I don't understand Gantt charts. I don't know these artifacts that you use and therefore I dismiss them and I don't trust your competence. Or is it that I don't trust your character? Do I think that by getting you involved, it's somehow going to be deleterious to my position, my status, my relationship with the client? And so first step is recognizing what might stand in the way. And then once you know that, there are different remedies for building competence trust versus interpersonal trust, and you know, happy to talk through some of those as well, but there's very specific steps that people can take.
0: You, you wrote a recent article in the Harvard Business Review, I think, about the impact of pandemic on trust and making the point that it's degrading trust. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So my co-author, Mark Mortensen and I, he's the professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD in France and we had independently heard quite a number of stories, anecdotes from the students we're teaching, the executives we're teaching, and, the, uh, and, and out in the, the work that we're doing, that trust was eroding horizontally in organizations. People were starting to mistrust their peers. So it wasn't so much that the boss wasn't trusting the underlings. Because oftentimes, you know, by some point in the pandemic, they'd figured out how to engage with people and understand their output, et cetera. The problem was that individuals didn't know what their peers were working on. And part of the problem is what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. In other words, I have a lot more information about myself. And when I attach motives or make attributions about why I'm behaving versus why somebody else is behaving in a certain way, it's easy for me to see everything that goes into my decision-making, all of those influences. I might be late submitting a report, but it's because I've got X, Y, and Z going on. Whereas if I look at my colleague who's late delivering something, the natural tendency is to attribute it to their character. He's lazy, she doesn't care, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something that psychologists have known about for a long time. So this plays into the virtual work or the work from home environment in that we have so much less information about other people's circumstances that it's very hard for us to essentially give people the benefit of the doubt not only when things are going poorly but also when things are going well to give people the credit that they deserve despite challenging circumstances. And it's one of the reasons that that trust is getting undermined. And we've been doing a lot of work to help Teams and organizations at various levels reestablish that kind of trust because it is absolutely foundational to smart collaboration as well as to the the sanity of the people in your organization.
0: And as you think about the pandemic beginning to ease and the ability to move more to this balance we talked about before between virtual and live, and you think about the lessons learned from the trust erosion, is that going to push people more towards? Reinstating the way we used to do it? Or are there lessons you can learn to incorporate to keep that balance?
1: I think there's a lot of lessons that we can incorporate. Um, For example, we know that there are some people who, for a whole variety of reasons, are better off working from home, working remotely. And when we understand well what it is about certain work environments that allow one person versus another to flourish. I think that the very best organizations, law firms and elsewhere, will understand how to create a more tailored set of choices for people where they can truly thrive. Because if we can't figure that out as leaders in an organization, then shame on us, right? It should not be down to the individual to conform to our rigid rules and assumptions about how good work happens. We should be able to say what good work looks like and give people the kind of culture and the set of options where they can perform at their absolute best. And for some people, that doesn't mean spending the time, money, effort, and everything else to get into an office day in, day out. I will say, I think it's important for organizations to have a place where people can come together. Human contact matters. Looking somebody in the eye for real and not just through a, through the camera lens does help to establish trust at a very basic level. Yet there's a lot that we can learn from these last 12 months that will help us create environments where people can can flourish and where they don't have to conform to unnecessary rules that essentially are about antiquated ways of leading, not necessarily good ways of getting the most out of your people.
0: And one of the benefits of the smart collaboration you talk about is, and, and particularly as, as you expand it to include other professionals, is this diversity of ideas, this creativity, the the innovation spark, which I've heard you talk about being more important than ever in a pandemic and as we come out of the pandemic. When you talk about innovation, you talk about it both in terms of ideation as well as execution. Can you just talk a little bit about those precepts?
1: Absolutely. So innovation is not creativity. That's where a lot of people go wrong. Creativity is only half of innovation. Innovation is creativity applied. And if it's just big, grand, novel, out-of-the-box thinking, it's still just a big idea. Until we figure out how to apply it and make it useful and meaningful, it is not true innovation. And that means that we need people who approach problems differently. So one of the pandemic projects that I, that I tackled with our team was launching a psychometric tool, the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. And it helps people through a very short online self-assessment understand their strengths along various behavioral dimensions that relate to smart collaboration. And one of those dimensions is what kind of problem they're drawn to. So are they complex thinkers? Do they love the big theoretical abstract problems? They like to make connections between, you know, distinct ideas. And they're the ones at the meeting who are you know always on and on about, ah, yes, and here are the, you know, here's, here's how we can think about this differently in and frameworks and, and, and the abstractions. And then there's the people who sit in the meeting and say, okay, but how's that going to work? What do we need? How do we put an action plan around that? And I have to say the people who are complex thinkers tend to look down their nose at the concrete thinkers. They tend to say, oh, they're so mundane. They're so boring, right? Whereas the people who are concrete pragmatists think that the other ones have their head in the clouds and so forth. And it's really easy to be irritated or disparage people who think differently from us. But if you want innovation, like we've just said, you need the big blue sky thinkers combined with the people who are going to put it into practice. And that's why diversity of thought just on that one dimension is crucial. We've developed this research-backed tool that helps people understand where they are on that dimension and six other ones. And the philosophy backed up by the research is wherever somebody comes out on one of those dimensions, they can use it as a strength, provided that they're very intentional and deliberate about it, and provided that they make space for people who operate differently than them. And This is essential for us to be thinking about in this era finally of getting our heads around, not just superficial diversity, but actual inclusion in the real work. How do we let people play to their strengths? If they are by nature, a responder, as opposed to an initiator, how do we find the roles for them in the law firm that allow them to play to their strengths? Responders are essential. If you have everyone out there who's initiating, you know, they're the go-getters. They're opening all the doors. Well, who's walking through those doors? Who, who comes, you know, who comes as the close, you know, follower that says, let's make sure this works. Let's close the deal. Let's keep people informed. Let's nurture that relationship as opposed to going out and finding the new, new thing. And responders often don't get the credit they deserve in a law firm or other professional service firms, broadly across organizations, I think. But if that's who somebody truly is, if that's where they really thrive, is picking up the ball and running with it and scoring with it, then let's find a way to pair them up with people who are the initiators, because they will both be better off. And through these various kinds of tools that are available now, we can give people evidence. You know, we're back to the data. We're back to the objective research-backed ways of, of thinking about how people behave and how to help people optimize that. Because, you know, Steve, we know that when people are playing to their strengths in an organization, they're engaged. And when people are engaged, there are measurable outcomes. I mean, it's not just productivity and lower absenteeism, both of which are true, but it's also the ability to attract and retain the very best talent. It's people who are fired up about their work. They find meaning and purpose in it. They talk to clients outside of a live matter. They keep those relationships going. They're excited to engage in the bigger, broader business problems, not just the technical legal aspects. And that's what's going to differentiate firms from their competitors is when they have this group of people who are fired up about practicing and engaging and smart collaboration is one way to get there.
0: Absolutely. In, in going back to the initiators and responders, what do you say to the pro- project lead so they use your tool, they know they've got three people who are initiators, three people who are responders, they understand they need both to create this team. What's the advice you give them? Okay, you now have them in the room. What do I do now?
1: Absolutely. So so self-awareness is the first thing. Um, So all of those people need to understand personally where they are. They need to understand the importance and the value of people who behave differently from them, because it's not just grudging acceptance. Okay, fine. I'll be nice and let you be you. It's if I help you to play to your strength, it's not altruism. You're better off, but so am I, because you do the bits that I'm not naturally drawn to doing. And the leader who creates that kind of environment where there is a a genuine appreciation and a desire to leverage these differences, that's the first step for the leader is create that kind of climate where people are open about these differences and are strategic in thinking about how they complement one another. The next thing I would say to that leader is making sure that the stories they tell Because every anthropologist will tell you that culture is made of stories, right? So, what stories are you telling? Because if you say we value everyone and then you consistently hero worship a certain kind of person, really? I mean, do you actually value these people? Then I'd say go to the next step and figure out are the ways that you are engaging in the core work of the firm, the way you allocate work, the way you make sure people have you know, mentorship and sponsorship, the the kinds of people you put on meaningful parts of matters and deals, is that lined up with your beliefs and what you've said about inclusivity and valuing differences? Because I'll tell you that the data that we run suggests that oftentimes there are decisions that are made at the local level which are sensible and rational, and sometimes even the best decision for 18. But when you add all of those up, they are not only suboptimal at the level of the firm, they can be downright dangerous. So for example, I study gender more than I study other kinds of diversity because it's more readily captured in firm records it's it's more prevalent. We have more women partners than we do people of color um, as partners. Um, and so statistically, I can study gender. And what I often find is that women are stretched thin across an array of projects, matters and deals. And the more projects or deals that they are working on at a time, the higher the switching costs, the higher the admin burden, the less likely they are to get stretched in developing new skills because they're doing the same small bit of work again and again and again from from one client to the next the less likely they are to have meaningful opportunities to develop client relationships there's huge almost invisible repercussions to having women slotted onto many 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 teams at once and yet the reason that happens is because every you know client lead partner says hey, our clients want more women on the team. Let's make sure we pull in Jane or Imani or Sally or whomever. And that might be the right decision tactically or in the short term. But when you add up all of those decisions, it's hugely detrimental. And like I said, I I studied this with women. There's a lot of reason to believe that the same kinds of dynamics happen across other categories of people in, in firms. And my advice, back to advice to leaders would be, pay attention to how the rubber hits the road. You know, in, in the work that really matters, the, the client engagements, the succession planning that you're doing, you know, hopefully every firm now is much more sophisticated in thinking about the next generation of leaders, who's, who's ready to step in and co-lead that key client account. Um, those are the kinds of decisions where, where firm leaders at all levels, and you know, I think every partner is a leader, they need to be not just aware of this, but very actively digging into the data to make sure that good intentions aren't showing up in ways that
0: backfire. Well, Heidi, that's all fabulous. Thank you very much. We're, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Again, your website is gardnerandco.co, not .com, .co, and they can find references to your books and articles on there and as well as how to contact you for additional research or additional advice.
1: Absolutely. I'd be delighted to hear from people. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.